William Joyce was the man who broadcast Nazi propaganda in a very English accent from Germany to Britain. He was laughed at by most people, but he frightened those in power, and after the war they hanged him. But they could only do so by distorting the law. The trial of William Joyce was not a war crimes trial, as are the other trials in this series, but it was the next closest thing. He was charged with high treason. To understand this case, we need to know something about Joyce, and we must pay special attention to his nationality. William Brooke Joyce was born in 1906 to Michael and Gertrude Joyce in their home at Herkimer Street in Brooklyn, New York. Michael was a native of Ireland, and Gertrude came from Shaw, just north of Manchester in England, and they had emigrated to the United States in 1888, 18 years before William's birth. They renounced their British nationality in 1894, and had become naturalised American citizens. And so, when William was born, he was born to American parents in the United States. Clearly he was, from birth, a US citizen. The family returned to Ireland in 1909, when William was three, and later moved to England. When William was 16, he applied to the University of London Officer Training Corps, the OTC, and in his letter of application he said, I was born in America, but of British parents. His father was questioned by the OTC on this point, and wrote back saying, of himself and his family, we are all British and not American citizens. This is a curious statement for a man who had formally renounced his British nationality, but it may perhaps be explained by something which William said after his arrest, and which we shall come to later. William studied at Battersea Polytechnic, and went on to study for four years at Birkbeck College, part of the University of London, where he gained a first-class degree in history. He later did a postgraduate course in philology. He developed an interest in politics, and his persuasion was to the far right. He was a member of Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists, the BUF, for four years, before leaving to form his own party. He became a firm admirer of the young Adolf Hitler and of the manner in which he governed Germany. In July 1933, he applied for a British passport. In the application, he declared that he was a British subject by birth and added that he had been born at Rutledge Terrace in Galway, Ireland. I believe that it is unlikely that he had forgotten his application to the OTC some 11 years earlier, when he had given as his birthplace the United States. But it may be that, like his father, he thought that a simple and apparently innocuous untruth was a price worth paying to avoid the problems of extensive correspondence with officialdom on a point which he thought irrelevant, and the choice of the home of his childhood memories was sufficiently close to the truth for everyone to be satisfied. The passport was duly issued, and five years later, in September 1938, Joyce renewed it for a period of one year and renewed it again in August 1939 for a further period of one year. 
the passport would expire on the 2nd of July 1940. That would be an important date, on the 2nd of July 1940. In the remaining days of peace, Joyce left Britain with his wife and entered Germany. Almost as soon as he had arrived in Germany, he applied for, and on the 18th of September, was granted a post in the German Broadcasting Service, in their English language service, where he would be an announcer, initially as a stand-in for an Englishman, Norman Bailey Stewart, and later, when Bailey Stewart resigned, in his stead. He continued to broadcast frequently until the 30th of April, 1945. In Britain, he had become a skillful public speaker, and his broadcasts from Germany were, in a sense, popular. At his peak, which was during the first part of the war, known as the Phony War, he was heard by an audience said to be six million, and this was in a population of 48 million. But his efforts did not achieve the success he hoped. His manner, his accent, and some of the things he said caused him to be principally an object of curiosity, ridicule, and even mirth, rather than a figure in whom his audience could place trust. And this, together with the nickname Lord Haw Haw, chosen to trivialise him, undermined his propaganda value. The only other fact relevant to his history is that in September 1940 he became a German citizen. Joyce made his last broadcast from Berlin on the 30th of April 1945, and then fled to Flensburg, near the Danish border, where on the 29th of May, he approached two British army officers in a wood. He tried to open a conversation with them, first in French and then in English. One of the officers thought he recognised his voice as that of Lord Haw Haw and asked him if he was indeed William Joyce. Joyce went to fetch something from his trouser pocket, but the other officer, Lieutenant Geoffrey Perry, was afraid that he might be reaching for a gun and shot him, apparently through both buttocks described primly at the trial as his legs. After a period of recuperation, Joyce was brought to London on the 16th of June and was charged with three counts of high treason, an offence which on conviction carried an automatic death penalty. Now let's look at the case. We shall examine first the law and then turn to the facts. First, a few words about treason. Until the 14th century, treason was a crime in common law, but what constituted a treasonous act was vague and changed according to whom the king saw as his enemies. It was recognised that codification was required, and in 1351 a law was passed, the Treason Act. This law defined the ways in which one could commit treason, for example, by plotting to kill the king, but the variety of treason with which Joyce was concerned was that of adhering to the king's enemies outside the realm. Adhering in this context is interpreted as giving aid and comfort. Central to the notion of treason is allegiance. The idea is that a person owes allegiance to a state and in return receives protection for himself and for his property. Allegiance demands protection. Protection demands allegiance. It seems a fair deal. There are two types of allegiance. 
A British subject owes a duty of allegiance to the crown, that is, his country, in the same way that an American citizen owes allegiance to the United States. It is called natural allegiance, and it remains with the person until he renounces his nationality. There is, however, a second type of allegiance, and it is called a local allegiance. It is the type of allegiance which a person assumes when, as a foreigner, an alien, he comes to stay in a country which is not his own. A Frenchman who visits England, whether it be for a day or a decade, in return for the protection he receives, is under a duty not to plot against the state, and if he does so, he will have committed treason. But that duty exists only while the alien is within the king's realm, and it ceases when he leaves that realm. English courts are empowered to try both British subjects and aliens for treason committed within the king's realm. They may try British subjects for treason committed anywhere in the world, but until 1945 they had never tried an alien in respect of a crime committed abroad other than piracy, and there was no suggestion that Joyce was a pirate. Joyce's allegedly treasonous acts were all committed in Germany, and so if he were an American citizen and was found guilty of treason by a British court, it would be a first. When Joyce was arrested, everyone, including probably Joyce himself, thought he was British, but when he was questioned, he said that he had been born in America. He understood that his father had been naturalised as an American, although he had no documents to prove it, and he went on to say that he believed that he had lost that nationality by failing to renew it. The prosecution were no doubt alarmed by the mention of the United States. They had been intending to prosecute Joyce for treason on the basis that he was British and owed a natural allegiance to the Crown. The first two charges they intended to bring that he had committed treason A by broadcasting from Germany throughout the war, and B by purporting to take German nationality, reflected this, and both charges would fail if he were an American. But they could find no British birth certificate, and there was a very real danger that he might be proved to be American. Accordingly, they added a third charge, that he had committed treason by broadcasting from Germany, for the period from the 18th of September 1939, the date when he became an employee of the German Broadcasting Service, to the 2nd of July 1940, the day on which his passport expired. And to support this, they thought up a legal argument which they hoped the court might just buy. The trial opened at the Central Criminal Court, known as the Old Bailey, in London on the 17th of September. The question of his nationality was the single most important issue. By now, documents had been obtained from the United States which indicated that Michael Joyce had indeed applied for naturalisation and been granted US nationality, and these were explained to the court by the First Secretary of the United States Embassy in London. Furthermore, both William's parents had been in England in 1917 and there were documents to prove that they had registered as aliens. Gradually, it became evident that it could not credibly be maintained that Joyce was anything other than American, and on that basis, counts one and two fell away, 
and were not heard of again until the judge formally instructed the jury to acquit on them. But count three stood. The prosecution justified this count by arguing that by applying for and holding a British passport, Joyce had accepted the benefits of protection by Britain, and in return for that protection owed the correlative duty of allegiance, and that for the period of the validity of the passport. Nonsense, said the defence. The applicant for the passport was an American, and merely holding a British passport did not make him British, with rights to protection from the British Crown. And counsel quoted the case of a Palestinian man falsely holding a British passport who had been deported from Britain. Indeed, defence counsel continued, the law on the matter, established over centuries, was that an alien's duty of allegiance to the British Crown ceased when he passed out of territorial waters. The prosecution came back. Times have changed, they said. In the past, the Crown was unable to grant protection to a British subject abroad. But with modern developments, such as the introduction of passports, the creation of embassies and consulates, and international agreements, that situation has changed. And because holding a passport could, and in fact did, engage the Crown's protection, so too was the reciprocal duty of allegiance also engaged. The matter was given to the judge to decide. He could have sided with the defence, in which case the trial would have folded. Or he could have decided that the passport did give protection, and therefore demand allegiance, but only until Joyce had used it for the purpose of entering Germany. Or he could have decided that it gave protection and demanded allegiance until its expiry date. There was also another possibility. No one knew what had happened to the passport, and so it was possible that Joyce had done something by which he wished to indicate that he no longer wished to be associated in any way with Britain, perhaps by handing the passport over to the German authorities, or tearing it up and throwing it away. The judge could therefore have asked the jury to decide what Joyce's intentions were, but he did not. As it was, he chose the worst possible option for Joyce. He directed the jury that the passport gave protection and demanded allegiance until its expiry date, and this effectively sank the defence. Any action which Joyce had taken from the date of the outbreak of war, the 3rd of September 1939, to the date of expiry of the passport on the 2nd of July 1940, was potentially treasonous. The prosecution, of course, still had to prove that Joyce had committed one or more treasonous acts by broadcasting propaganda. Into our story now comes one Mr. Albert Hunt, or I should say Inspector Hunt, because he was a police officer serving with Special Branch at New Scotland Yard. Special Branch is a department of the police which deals with security matters. Inspector Hunt had first met Joyce in 1934 and heard him talk at a public meeting and indeed had gone on to hear him talk at a number of subsequent meetings. It is easy to assume that he had been given the task of acquiring evidence which would justify raising a criminal charge against Joyce, but no charges were in fact brought, and then the war intervened. During the war, Hunt, presumably as the Joyce expert, was asked to listen to some of the broadcasts made by Joyce, 
and this he did at the BBC studios on four separate occasions, in 1943 and 1944. He made transcriptions of these, and they were placed before the court. They proved, beyond any doubt, that the message Joyce broadcast was virulently pro-Nazi propaganda. But of course, by then Joyce was a naturalised German, and he was doing no more than his duty. What these intercepted broadcasts did not prove, however, was that Joyce had broadcast before 1943, and indeed before the 2nd of July 1940. Without that proof, Joyce would walk from court a free man. This point was not lost on Hunt. His quarry, the man he had been pursuing since 1934, would escape, probably for all time. It was then that Inspector Hunt's memory came to the rescue. He had been posted to Folkestone at the outbreak of war on the 3rd of September 1939 and had remained there until the 10th of December 1939. With the prosecution of William Joyce now imminent and a total absence of relevant proof available to the prosecution, he remembered that when he was in Folkestone on some day within about a month of the start of war, he had been twiddling the dial of his wireless set and had heard a voice which he recognised, with no doubt whatever, as being that of William Joyce, giving pro-Nazi propaganda. So, what did Hunt tell the court? He said, The prisoner's voice stated that Dover and Folkestone had been destroyed. Unquote. That is what Inspector Hunt told the court. Eleven words. That was the proof of the charge offered by the prosecution against Joyce. Without those eleven words, the case would have failed. Inspector Hunt had nothing to show to the court which might confirm his claim to having this memory. He might, for example, have jotted down some record in a notebook, as he must have done as a police officer on hundreds of occasions, or perhaps made an entry in his diary or even mentioned it to someone, but there was none of this. The court had only his word. Now, if you had been a member of the jury, you would have noted that this evidence was uncorroborated. That is to say that there was no other witness who would testify to having heard the same broadcast. It was not quite one man's word against another's, because Joyce did not go into the witness box, but he had pleaded not guilty, and by implication this was a denial. Would you have been willing to believe Hunt's claim, with no reasonable doubt in your mind, that Joyce had done it when Joyce, by implication, said that he hadn't done it? And as a member of the jury, you would, of course, have asked yourself whether this claim by Hunt was the sort of thing that Joyce would in fact have said. Joyce was newly employed by the Germans, and if his task was to make propaganda broadcasts, then his value to his masters in the future would be the trust placed in him by his British audience. Why, therefore, should he start his career with a lie, which was so large and so easily refuted, that it would strike at his credibility for all time? We have already seen that he was intelligent, a first-class degree from the University of London. And this claim of Folkestone having been destroyed, if indeed it was made, was an act of crass stupidity. You would also have noticed the coincidence that of all the towns in England, 
one of the two alleged to have been destroyed was Folkestone, where Inspector Hunt was stationed. Was this entirely by chance? Did Inspector Hunt enjoy his posting at Folkestone? And you might perhaps also have noticed that Inspector Hunt, who claimed his memory to be perfect in some respects, was unable to say on what day, or at what time, or on what frequency he heard these comments. You would note that this made it very difficult for the defence to provide an alibi. If they had wanted to say that Joyce had been elsewhere at the relevant time, or perhaps to show that Hunt had not been near a wireless set when the transmission was made, it would have been very difficult. They would not even have known in which haystack to start looking. I have no doubt that you would have wondered whether this was entirely by chance. As a member of the jury, you might also have wondered whether there was only one witness. Surely it would have been an easy matter for the prosecution to produce a raft of witnesses to confirm Hunt's evidence. Joyce had many millions of listeners, and some of these, especially those living in Dover and Folkestone, must have remembered a wireless broadcast saying that their home city had been destroyed. And yet, not one of these people was produced. Why not? This was a major trial, so what would have happened if Hunt had, say, been run over by a bus the day before the trial? Would the whole matter have come to an abrupt end? The judge picked up this point in his summing up. He told the jury that the facts were not so full as one could wish. Unquote. That, in my view, is a gross understatement. He should have said that the evidence presented by the prosecution was vague, uncorroborated, and because of that, potentially misleading. The court retired at 3.37pm on the 19th of September for the jury to decide its verdict, and it reconvened to hear that verdict at precisely 4pm, 23 minutes later. The foreman of the jury announced an acquittal on counts 1 and 2, but a conviction on count three. The judge then had only one option. He donned the black cap and passed the sentence of death. The jury had decided to send a man to the gallows in less time than it takes to listen to this podcast. Joyce lodged an appeal with the appeal court, but it was rejected by all three judges. A further appeal was made to the House of Lords, the highest court in the land, but they too rejected it by a decision of four to one. William Joyce was allowed one more Christmas and was sent to the gallows on the 3rd of January, 1946. The British public had spent six war-torn years railing and seething at Joyce, believing him to be a renegade Englishman. He was reviled when free in Germany and was attacked when in prison in England. But the mood quickly changed. The Belson trial had recently handed down death sentences for those involved in the brutal killing of tens of thousands of people. And to sentence a man to death who had personally hurt no one, and to do so for doing no more than saying that Dover and Folkestone had been destroyed, appeared wildly disproportionate. Most people were deeply uneasy at the forthcoming execution. An accountant named Edgar Bray wrote to King George VI on Christmas Day, 1945. He wrote, 
I am firmly convinced that we are proposing to hang Joyce for the crime of pretending to be an Englishman, which crime, so far as I am aware, in no possible case carries a death penalty. A.J.P. Taylor, the eminent Oxford historian, is brutal. He described it as a piece of legal chicanery and accepted a suggestion that the result was judicial murder. C.E. Beckhofer Roberts, a barrister and author, said that the existing law had been stretched almost to breaking point and a man had died for it. Even Sir Hartley Shawcross, who had led the prosecution, said of the case that it remains in my mind as one of which I am not specially proud. Joyce was tried before a jury of ten men and two women, all of whom probably hated him. The judge extended the law well beyond any previous limit. The evidence of his treasonous act was as thin as evidence can be. The prosecution of Joyce should be compared with that of Norman Bailey Stewart, who had been the principal announcer on German wireless in the early months of the war until he was replaced by Joyce. He was a British subject, but he was charged with the lesser offence of committing an act likely to assist the enemy, and escaped with five years imprisonment. It is difficult to think that Joyce's notoriety, gained in large measure from the five years of his broadcasts after the 2nd of July 1940, and therefore irrelevant to the charge on which he was tried, were responsible for this gross disparity of treatment. And if Joyce had asked for an American passport, as he was entitled to do, and indeed should have done, the British government would have had no quarrel with him, and this trial would not have taken place. But the government wished to hang him, and they did so, not for what he had done in Germany, but because of his choice of passport. As A.J.P. Taylor has trenchantly put it, Technically, Joyce was hanged for making a false statement when applying for a passport, the usual penalty for which is a small fine. I believe that the British establishment had decided that James Joyce was a traitor and that he should suffer the punishment of a traitor. Nothing would deter them from that course. They did everything needed to have him hanged, and the jury aided and abetted them. It was a shameful moment in the judicial history of England. That is what I think, but you must form your own view.